Okay. Hello, everyone. My name is Susan Lamarca, and I'm the Executive Officer of the School Library Association of Victoria. I'd like to formally and respectfully begin the event by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which I am today, the Wurundjeri Willam people, one of the five tribes of the Kulin Nation, the traditional owners of this land. I would also like to pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging, and those with us here today, and specifically acknowledge the important role of story in the history and the lives of the traditional owners of this land. We have a very full and exciting program of speakers, so I ask you keep your microphones muted. Feel free to ask questions in the chat, and we will address them either during or at the end of each speaker. We are recording this forum and will make a link available to all participants. We will also be creating an audio version for SLAB's podcast channel. We have created a Padlet for this event and encourage all participants to add items on our topic to this space. And I will put the link in the chat later on, but it was in all of your communications and all of the reminders that you've received. This is our fourth and last event in the Reading Forum series for 2021. This forum is on picture books for senior or older students, and it will engage with the concept of picture books for upper primary and secondary age students. Complex texts that through art and story provide layers to explore. Texts that pose questions, encourage thinking on issues and big ideas. So welcome everyone. I can see we've had a few more people join us. Um, it's fantastic that you can be here on this Thursday afternoon. We, I'd love to firstly welcome our first speaker, um, or first speakers actually, a duo, uh, to the screen. The creative team of Pierre-Jacques Aubert and Jules Aubert. Pierre-Jacques Aubert is an author and modeler following a 30-year international career as an independent producer and director in the audiovisual industry. He now focuses on the research, development, writing and creation of books, or as he likes to call them, paper movies. Following his lifelong passion for history and toys, he has developed a unique way of telling stories with photographs of figurines in miniature sets. Jules Aubert is the photographer-designer for the creative team. Born in Sydney, educated at the Sydney uh, Conservatorium of Music, Jules has brought her musical sensitivity into the visual world as an image maker working between Australia and Europe, across platforms as diverse as fine art printmaking, film and multimedia production. Her photographic work has been shown in both solo and group exhibitions in Sydney, Paris and Byron Bay. The team's first book, The Good Son, won the New South Wales Premier's Young People's History Prize. And Pierre-Jacques and Jules are going to share us, with us a little about their latest book, Jacqueline, A Soldier's Daughter. Welcome to you both. Thank you so much. Hi. <laughs> Thank you very much. So, um, yes, we're speaking new to you today temporarily from uh, Bunjalung country here in uh, northern New South Wales, um, where we are just for a couple of weeks due to family circumstances, but um, we're usually based in Melbourne. Um, anyway, yes, I'm Jules, and thanks very much for the for the intro. Um, I think you've probably <laughs> said everything we need to say about ourselves, and um, we can maybe uh, start by um, playing you a little uh, trailer of uh, our book, Jacqueline. So just bear with me one second on a little technical note, and I will share that with you. And I'm going to be sharing. 
screen too. Sorry, about, sorry about this. So this was the trailer of our uh, new book, Jacqueline, and um, I thought that I would start by uh, letting you know how we came about to uh, tell those stories and make those books. As you can see on the screen, it's a lot about soldiers, um, and uh, this is due simply by the fact that I am myself an army kid. And I belong to a very old uh, military family, and I'm the only one, the first one in this family pretty much since Napoleon, to not uh, be an army officer. Um, I have always preferred uh, philosophy to war, and instead of uh, joining my family tradition, I went to the Sorbonne in Paris to uh, study philosophy. Um, this said, uh, I am a product of my environment, and because of it, I've always been very interested in history. I'm very tuned and familiar with the values attached to the military life. And when it, come to tell, when it came to tell story, I thought it, would, it naturally became very, uh, very personal. Uh, the first book we did, The Good Son, is in fact a metaphor for me um, showing my parents that I could be a good son without being a good soldier, which is the story of the main character of this first book, who, uh, being caught uh, in the First World War, tried to be a good soldier and a good son at the same time and find out it's impossible uh, in a tragic way because he ended up being killed for it. Uh, the second book, as you can see, Jacqueline, A Soldier's Daughter, which tells the story of uh, what happened to my mother, a soldier's daughter, uh, between the age of seven and 12 uh, during the Second World War. Uh, a few years ago, my mother uh, gave to my sister and I her memoir, the story of her life. And when I read the chapters about the Second World War, I suddenly realized for the first time Things like why she didn't like sheep, for example, uh, or even more importantly, it was impossible to leave her behind when, as a family, we were doing something. Like I always wanted to do things with my dad only. He would always say, no, 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 we can't leave your mother behind. We all do things together. I discovered why by reading a, a recollection of 
our experience of the Second World War. And I thought that that could resonate, uh, make the, a good theme for a sort of story to tell. Um, this said, and I've always loved playing with little soldiers. You know why I had real soldiers uh, marching up and down the squares in uh, my little room in the army barracks. I was playing with my own little soldiers. Uh, but I was very imaginative. It was a way for me to escape into, uh, you know, all sorts of different worlds. Uh, and it's something that I had all my life. It was my escapism, if you want, uh, to lose myself into this miniature world, which made me a bit of an odd aspect of uh, me as a husband or as a father to our children. And um, until uh, a few years ago, when I decided to do as a um, birthday present for my dad's 80th birthday, a little series of photos of soldiers of the First World War in memory of uh, my grandfather that uh, participated that war. And, you know, they were individual images uh, and um, we put them on Instagram. And very quickly, we discovered that there was uh, real narrative possibilities coming at those images, simply because Jews got involved and as a photographer, started to really create things that I was not expecting. So as I've been working in the film industry for a long time, and we developed this little insight into possible storytelling and play together, finally, after 25 years of uh, marriage. I finally played Little Soldiers Within. <laughs> <laughs> we ended up, uh, well, so what started as a little present for my dad ended up in a full exercise in uh, visual storytelling. Um, it took us a, a few, a, a development period, if you want, to end up with the technique and the, the look that now are on those books, because being European, I've been uh, born and bred with what is called bande dessinée, so a graphic novel, but the Franco-Belgian style of it, which is uh, the most well-known are uh, Tintin and Asterix. So as a storytelling vehicle and, and tool, we ended up telling the stories with speech bubbles. But little by little, and especially because this story is very emotional and very moody, started to realize that, in fact, the speech bubbles, sure, were giving a lot of information, but they were cluttering a little bit the feeling of the image to the detriment of the emotion. So we decided to uh, let the photograph come to life uh, to let their beauty and pregnancy speak because they were speaking, uh, shows because they were speaking louder than words. Um, so we, we uh, stripped the text, took out the speech bubbles, and ended up with a text with minimal, uh, with a yeah, minimal text, but uh, emphasis on the pictures. And basically, we ended up with what is called here a picture book. Picture books being mainly for children. And once it came out as a children book, and despite being successful, we knew 
because it was not the first intent uh, to do a book for children, it was a little bit sad and a little bit heavy for little children. So we took that into account for our next uh, book, The Story of My Mother, and we decided to tell that story, which is basically the point of view of a little girl between five years, which is caught into most part of the time events that uh, she can't really comprehend, which are very confusing to her, but which are all related with trying to reunify the family because my grandmother didn't want to be separated from my father, war or no war, and that led them, <coughs> sorry, that led them onto a series of uh, adventures. Um, so um, the next uh, picture is going to trying to explain to you how we try to keep the the content, the information, the, the story with minimal text and putting forward the image. And so that we use, for example, the, the layout. In that case, it's very simple. I explain you the context. Uh, my grandmother has found out that her uh, man was prisoner 300 kilometers from where they were. She packed up a bag, take her bicycle, put my mother on the back, and she rode her bicycle 300 kilometers to try to reunite with my father. So in my grandfather, sorry. In that uh, double page, you can see on one side the sense of movement and going from A to B through time because it's at night and during the day in different type of setup in the country and through villages. Then with at the end a pause to explain how tiring it must have been, how rough the, the, the voyage was, but at the same time, the need to bring a little bit of comfort, keep the child safe with the arm around the shoulder in front of a fire. So it's created the rhythm. And, it's and that's how you create the rhythm between moment of actions, moment of movement, and more movement of more steadiness of reflection. Then that's another example of how to create, in that case, suspense without getting into a lot of explanation. And again, in context, so once uh, they are not reunited, but they are in the place where uh, my grandfather was prisoner, my, grandfather, my grandmother organized his escape. So that took, uh, you know, a, uh, a part of the book is how she managed to organize the escape of her man from a prison. And this is the moment where he's going to get smuggled out of the prison in uh, litter, uh, in carts, leading to this dramatic image where suddenly uh, the Sentinel Sermon Journal are German soldiers are piercing those bags of garbage with their bayonets, which must be hiding in the, in the garbage. So, yeah. You turn the page, and then you find out that the reaction of the mother, and uh, in that case, it's the contrary. It's the little girl who it's the first time she saw a courageous mom uh, really being distressed is comforting her. But the text tell you that the grandfather was not in the bag because he hesitated, he was scared the last minute. It will happen the next day. And the next day you go to the image and the story goes on. 
So there are devices we are used they are visual device, in fact, where you lead the viewer to moment of, you have to turn the page to either confirm a moment of drama or diffuse it. And it's through all those different, you can use humor, we use humor, we use suspense, we use movement, and, and you know, different reason amongst other things to, uh, to get the story along. With a with a very um, with a with a with a challenge, which is those little plastic and resin figurines are pretty much devoid of emotion. They are just little piece of plastic. You can see their size, and the challenge was how to bring emotion in the picture themselves. And Jules is going to start to explain you from an image making point of view how she managed that because me I've always been amazed from the beginning from the time of my father's birthday present how Jews could create such mood and depth just with the light of the window in our little office at different times of the day. So here's the image that I was making in that previous photo. Um, so I just go back to it. You can, um, you can see the little cart um, coming towards the camera. So uh, this was the resulting image. Um, so just using that backlight in the morning. Um, I've always loved working as a photographer, always loved working with natural light. Um, I actually really don't like studio lighting at all, unless, it, unless it's very cleverly used and looks like natural light. Um, but yes, so, so using this natural light, I think brings a really kind of eerie reality to the images of these little um, plastic figurines. Um, so our first story, The Good Sun, took place across um, the space of 24 hours. Uh, and so I quickly realized that if I respected the different hours of the day when I was creating the scenes, it created a, a continuity through through the story so that you really felt like you, you were in, in, in the, um, the time frame of the story. Um, so this picture is, uh, is, is dawn on the morning that our, our character is going to be meeting his fate. Um, Jacqueline, our second story, takes place across five years and three different countries, two continents. So um, in this story, the change of the season helps to carry the emotion of the storytelling um, along with the, the different quality of light um, in the different places, the different seasons. Um, so here we see the soft, muted light of winter in Alsace, um, which adds to the, the kind of somber feeling of, of, of that moment in the story. Um, as opposed to further on in the story, the family has um, arrived in Algeria. And so here in the Sahara, it's a, a much happier, more optimistic moment and the bright, um, the bright sunny blue skies of, of Africa. Um, are helping us to, um, to, to get all the feels for that moment. Um, another you know, really big challenge, as Pierre-Jacques referred to before, is uh, the fact that um, these little figures are very stiff and, uh, and not expressive at all. So um, I quickly found out that you could, um, you could either pull them apart, some of them, you know, some of them come as kits with arms and legs and heads separate to the bodies. Um, I could... Uh, remove uh, the arms and legs and the heads and uh, use 
body language to bring emotion. So this, this moment um, is from The Good Son, our first book. And uh, Pierre, our main character here, is seen as he's reflecting on his fate. Um, and yeah, just the, the tilt of the head or um, the slump of the shoulders can really um, bring that uh, emotion to the little plastic figurines. Um, here's a moment from Jacqueline where she's um, she and her mother are having a, a little bit of a standoff. She's feeling um, she's feeling like her life in 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 North Africa is is very boring and dull, and she's and she's quite grumpy. And her mother's explaining to her that um, mean, meantime in in Europe, all sorts of terrible things are happening, and that they're extremely fortunate to be there in Algeria um, in 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 the safety of their of their little enclave, the relative safety anyway. Um, so yes, that gives us a, a little feeling of uh, of the how how and why have we made the images. Um, so yeah, again, yeah, maybe as a you know as a conclusion, I could tell you briefly about what really ultimately is the purpose and justification and message of our story. Is um, <coughs> it's, for me, it's to make history interesting to children while offering a more gentle approach to it. Uh, I know that Jews before we did those projects, has never been interested in history because for her, it's just a series of dates to remember of people who are fighting each other, conquering each other. And she really didn't find that interesting at all or could not relate it to anything of importance to her. Um, from my point of view, being a bit more acquainted with it, uh, what I was interested in is to talk about Sometimes the real only heroes, and most part of the time, the only true heroes in wars are the women who have to keep things together while the men have gone on doing their things willingly or unwillingly. Uh, the fact that children bear for life the scars of uh, their experience to be thrown into wars. My mother story is a happy story. This book is ultimately about reconciliation because she's also a single child who dreams of having a sister and to play with and she has to go through the whole Second World War to finally find herself in occupied Germany, sharing a house with a family with children and having the brothers and sisters she always dreamed about. And in fact, our two families, the German and French family, have celebrated 75 years of friendships. So that's also what the book is about. So basically, going away from the flag-waving, heroic, war-glorifying aspect of books and history and things like this. And uh, yes, I hope we have achieved that. Um, that was absolutely fascinating. Sorry, I don't, I wanna, I'd love to get you to answer a couple of questions that are in the chat before we move on because we're, we're right at the end of our time. That really was truly fascinating. Uh, there is a comment from uh, Peter. He says that he read The Good Son to a Year 8 class around November 11th last year and it led to an excellent discussion. So that's a lovely statement. Yes. And Dawn would like to know, um, were you able to manipulate the figurines by melting, melting or softening the plastic? Is that what you did? No, no, we didn't actually, we didn't go that far. I mean, as you can see with our books, you know, each book is 104 pages long and they, they contain many images. So we're kind of, we're speed modelers really. Pierre-Jacques would... No, but to answer the question yeah. more precisely, 
have used spare parts. I spend a lot of time uh, looking for models, and sometimes you end up with uh, Iraq war soldiers with an uh, arm uh, holding a piece of chocolate, and I will just take the arm and put it to a First World War soldier because I want the soldiers to give. So we didn't need to melt, but there was a lot of mixed matching things from sometimes from different periods. And then Jews has to do just the slightest retouch to, for example, take away a zipper and put three buttons instead. That's how we did it. The, the images are all historically accurate here. Pierre Jacques has a really, um, a really fantastic encyclopedic knowledge of um, uniforms and, and, and the history, the periods that we were, the stories are set in. So um, they are historically accurate. Yeah. And now 20 minutes out. <laughs> yeah, they are, they are. That was fantastic. <laughs> Thank you very much. I'm going to press on. Um, and uh, you can see there in the chat, so that's all good. Yes, I'll have Wonderful. You. Thank you very much. <laughs> and our next guest this afternoon is uh, Dr. Janet Poulton. Janet has been, a proact has been proactive in establishing the history... I oh, beg your pardon. I'll start that again. Janet has been proactive in establishing uh, the philosophy in schools for over 25 years. Since 2002, she has been employed as the Education and Innovations Officer of the Victorian Association for Philosophy in Schools. And in this position, she has recently headed a three-year ethical capability project in partnership with the Victorian Department of Education. Janet's doctorate topic was the development of philosophical dispositions in the middle years of schooling, and she is currently employed at the Melbourne Graduate School of Education at the University of Melbourne as a clinical teaching specialist. Janet is joining us this afternoon, and she's going to share with us her top 10 picture storybooks for teens. Janet, welcome. It's wonderful that you can be here. Just need to unmute you. Are you? There you go. You should be unmuted now. Yes. Yeah. So thank you very much for inviting me. And that was a pleasure to hear um, Pierre and Gilda's um, um, discussion of their work. I'm actually going to come at this in a very, in a very different way. Um, and I, because I've been in lockdown, I haven't got access to all my books. I'm going to focus on a couple of books in particular, um, given the 20 minutes as well. And um, I'm coming at this from the point of view of uh, teacher philosophy who's in, um, speaking to librarians and hoping to find out, uh, to find more books that will be useful in the years as well. So I'm talking to you, giving you some examples of what we look for, what we find valuable in, in picture story books. Um, so yeah, you 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 probably be able to help me out after I've um, given you a little bit of an explanation. So here we go. I'm going to share my screen and it's just that share button down the bottom, Janet. Yes. Yes. And oh, it's just taking a bit of time. Sometimes it does. Yes, we can see the presentation. Yep. And I start. Okay, here we go. First time on Webex, so let's <laughs> hope so make it through. Um, so I can't. Okay, what's going on there? <coughs> there, we're fine. So. 
the first thing I'd like to explain to you is about the philosophy of going to school. Philosophy goes to school is um, the title of a book by Matthew Lippmann, and it's um, a, a rationale for for teaching, delivering philosophy into schools from um, middle primary onwards. So, um, and it's an educational movement. Um, it's got it's very concerned about uh, scaffolding learning within philosophy as well. So we're not not interested in just delivering philosoph philosophical problems to children. We're looking at capabilities which enable children to be more philosophical. Um, and just to get you to the picture, <coughs> um, so it's a very distinctive approach to to learning to teaching. Uh, and the aims of the curriculum are both academic and social. That means we, in 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 delivering philosophy for children, we deliver it in a community of inquiry kind of context. We have to build that context, and that context involves the develop, development of dialogical skills through collaborative work and and focusing on particular thinking skills. So you might ask yourselves, what's this got to do with picture storybooks? Um, <coughs> first of all, we we recognise that. What's important, um, big ideas are contestable. So it's not that we would try and deliver to children an idea of what love truly is or what fairness truly is, and that sort of thing. But these are concepts, these big ideas, philosophical ideas, um, such as love, fairness, friend, family, and so forth, um, are a part of our earliest experience, but they're common, common to every child. Without, with, um, even though there's some outliers, of course, but in any context, any social context, you'll find any cultural context, <coughs> they're also central to the life of any individual, whether they be an old or young or any particular gender or any particular ethnicity. So, in other words, human beings basically are concerned about love, fairness, friend and family, etc. Um, but the interesting thing about this concept is that they're contestable. So even though they're common, they're central, the little child certainly uses these, these concepts, as does the mature adult, um, they, the, the meanings, we still talk about what is, what is love really, what is um, peace, what is uh, reconciliation. So um, what we look for in the picture storybooks is, is where there's um, a particular, uh, we, we look for books which will trigger questions uh, concerning things like the human-animal distinction. And I've just got a quick example of the Anthony Brown. I'm not sure how well this goes down in the, um, in the secondary level, but just as an example of where you've got uh, the, you've got a kind of, uh, questioning of the relationship or, or the identity, the distinction, the distinctions between human beings and animals. So student, children can start thinking about that. They're not thinking about the animals as human, but they're thinking about them as how are they actually distinct. So that's a good example. Um, now, philosophy for children has opened up a new thinking in the philosophy of childhood as well. And the suggestion is that children and teenagers, we need to we need to rethink the child. The child is not an ignorant being, but it's a rational agent. And if you listen closely to most children, they make brilliant inferences throughout their day. They make they draw conclusions quite, um, you know, quite adeptly. You know, um, 
want to be examples because I think we should have timed it. Um, so this reasoning is 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 just it naturally evolves with human beings. So it's not it's not problematic. It's not something that you know only teenagers or only adults in, make inferences or think. But how consciously they we think is the question is a question. So um, now one of the things about um, about this this kind of work is that we don't use uh, philosophical texts per se as stimulus material. Largely the material been used to be narrative texts and one of the reasons for this is in selected texts there is um, often there's usually examples of children in dialogue, first of all in dialogue but also in um, Domestic places, so the interest is not in placing philosophy in the, you know, in, in, in strange places, but how philosophy is part, philosophical concepts are part of everyday life. So the normalising of of these ideas. So two two main things: the narrative often has this dialogue between students trying to nut out issues together, um, and the other thing is the uh, the domestic nature. So mostly you have settings are school, home, the park, the playground and so forth. Um, but what's also important, um, sorry, just main bump. Um, yep. So what's most also important here is uh, yeah, moving across to this picture storybook, which does not provide often does not provide some of these elements which which we thought were really important. Um, and What's what is useful about that kind this this genre, which has proved to be um, absolutely very successful in this domain, is at least space for a child as a thinker and maker of meaning. So often in these picture storybooks, you have boldness, the big ideas that we, we are referred to before, and the illustrations add or they can test meaning rather than provide a literal uh, interpretation of. Um, text. So it's a, there's, there's a, a distancing between text and image. Um, they also, uh, sorry, I'm, I'm, what I'm talking about are the picture storybooks that we select for philosophy. I'm not saying this is true of all picture storybooks. So they also expose conceptual ambiguity, ambiguity and contestability of ideas. That's one set of, thing, of, of features of, of the picture storybooks we like to use. Another is that they juxtapose alternative points of view. The themes are presented as controversial, not settled, not this is a singular worldview, that the, the, a complex and, and competing worldviews are all um, in play. And it's philosophical possibilities from at least two branches of philosophy. Uh, so there may be aesthetic interests in, in, in these picture storybooks, or there may be you know, political philosophy and ethical philosophy. So the richer, uh, the better. Now, I, what I've also what I've chosen. Um, so, picture the picture books, the ambiguity and complexity. It's said by some demand a community of inquiry pedagogy that positions participants, young children, teenagers, as able meaning makers and problem solvers. So that's where I'm heading with the discussion now. I'm taking um, the example of uh, Fox, which we use used in um, almost any age level, which is um, from primary in primary, even though it's a very poignant and painful story, it's, it's often used in the primary context, but also secondary and tertiary context, um, just to 
show you an example because um, I won't play you. Do, do people know this story? Do they know this book? I'd imagine it's very popular. With, it's very well known. I would expect they would, Janet. It yeah. is very well known and won yeah. many awards and so on. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm not going to go into. Um, I'm not going to tell the story, but is it? Um, it's it's one of the concerns is one about friendship. So um, I'm just going to show you now some responses to how we might address such a book. Um, so we take there's sort of four kinds. Books are used to provoke questions from from students to enable students to ask questions of a philosophical kind, and that becomes the discussion. So we look at we might look at a, four kinds of questions, which a book like Fox might raise. First are the comprehension questions, and here's an example from um, some, some some teenagers. Uh, so what's a con what's an observation question? Where did Fox bring Magpie to? So questions about place, characters, and so forth. Speculation. These are questions which um, the answers in the book they're bound by the the world of the book, uh, but the answers not provided by the book. So, for example, would Magpie be able to survive in the in the Desert in the place where she's taken, or could it? Could what would happen if it returned to dog? So these are speculative questions, but the answers are um, shaped and coloured by what's already in the text, and we call those um, text-based questions. We then use the book to move outside the text into the world, into the world of the child themselves. So it becomes a, a, a bridge. To enable them to talk about um, their own experience. Um, so, for example, here's some questions from children again. A research question would be, "Can birds survive in the wild?" Uh, but a philosophy question is, could be, "Is nothing ever enough?" That's a question that a child's come up with. Is nothing ever enough? So, uh, here's another set. Um, and just to focus on the philosophy, and we try and enable children to distinguish to to make this journey um, via the book. And this sounds very instrumental of it. I can hear everyone thinking it. <laughs> but um, <clears throat> the philosophy, um, what does it mean to be loyal, would be as distinct from uh, a speculative question, would Magpie have been less trusting as a result of this you know, sort of a psychological question about a character? So we, we're um, assisting children distinction between psychology and philosophical exploration. Um, here's another set from an older group of, this would be a group answer. So again, just looking down at this section here, there's a statement, this life is good, an objective claim. Can we measure happiness? Are emotions relative? What is the difference between an emotion and a sense? So these, uh, all these questions uh, arise from the, from the children. So then what, what we might do is take, uh, have children pick, pick a question from, of the philosophical kind, their favourite of the philosophical kind that they've heard in their class to date. So we take them to a dot storming page and they put up their questions. Here they can vote on which of the preferred questions. So for example, this question here was chosen. Doc compares the loss of wings to the loss of his eye. Magpie says it's completely different. Are there elements of us that are essential to our identity? So this question is about Essential, the essential character, our essential character. Do we have an essence? 
and I've got eight votes. That was, there was one that was a vote, a question that was then decided on which one to talk to, speak to. Now this this depth of questioning, um, you know, it's, it's a marriage of, of having providing a really rich stimulus and and um, the experience of the children, the, the confidence of the children in drawing out their own uh, issues and, and matters that concern them. So we'd ask them, you know, why did why did you vote for that question? And we get um, certain certain further understandings of what why it's important, Christian essence and identity is important, or maybe disability, how that 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 is connected with essence. Um, so just to reiterate a little bit, the concepts of big ideas are central central and contestable. And so we move away from literal readings of the story or trying to understand the author's intentions. That's not, not for first and foremost on our minds. What we're looking at is um, finding opportunity to examine abstract concepts that emerge when children are allowed to, to engage with, um, to enter this kind of forum for discussion. And, um, <coughs> What we might then do is just look at the um, the kinds of concepts that came up. So you would have noticed here, uh, over here, um, well, identity was one really important one, which is often recurred. Um, uh, what determines our existence? Concept, of, yeah, that's again connected with existence and, and identity. So um, what we would then do is create a um, a, a, a concept game around the concept that was identified. Now, let's just see if I can get to this page from here. Can I do that? Okay. Um, so, what I've got to show you here is. Uh, Some extracts, some of the pictures from the book. I might have to actually, because I can't connect across. I might have to do it this way. Stop sharing and start again. That's okay. I've stopped sharing, haven't I? Yes, you have. You have, Janet. Yeah. You've stopped sharing. Yep. And so what I want to do is get to my that connection. Uh, not sure that I can do that. Well, I think I have to end this show. And Sorry, this wasn't a very tidy segue. Sorry about this. Okay, here we go. You're over here. You've all moved. And now I've got you again. I think. Right. So, here. So, uh, 
Yes, you can see that now. Uh, yes, we can. We can see an image from Fox. Correct. Okay, good. Up. So, so then we would be play. We would um, have isolated, identified one of the concepts which was in, of interest to children. It might be the, the issue of friendship and loyalty was one which was what occurred in this case. So we'd extract those particular images, which which raised uh, can deepen their, their the sense of what the, so they can sh have this shared experience of that issue. So magpie feels the wind streaming through her feathers when she rejoices. Fly, dog, fly, I will be your missing eye and you will be my wings. And children are asked to consider whether that, in fact, is, is could be an image of friendship. Does it fit their notion of friendship to be to be compensating for somebody's weaknesses? So, um, in the second case, so, so dog rhymes with magpie on his back every day through summer and winter. That feeling of exhilaration one has is that is that a characteristic or criteria for friendship? So this is how we work through the images. Do the images um, how do they help us understand the complexity of friendship and of failure of friendship? And we might uh, Janet, we might have to we might have to wind it up there because we're uh, we're at the end of our time. But I really yeah. appreciate uh, that there. I think, and I know everyone will have um, Fox in their library and they can go yeah. off and. For um, that, further yeah. with some of the prompts you've given them, and you can see that we would also collect um, images from other, 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 other representations of friendship too, to assist with the development of, that, of a concept like that. So that's um, that's how we might use a picture storybook, and we'd love um, we'd love any further recommendation of books that have that quality, that enable that kind of depth of exploration of concepts. Thanks, Janet. I'm sure that there'll be other suggestions um, if you can stay with us because I know Joe is going to share quite a few yeah. ideas yeah. with us later on and uh, and obviously the different creators that are here are sharing their wonderful books with us as well. So if anyone has, oh, we're getting some people writing in the chat now. Someone suggested yeah. uh, the Armin Greeter. So there's, uh, there's uh, I'm sure people, if anyone has got suggestions for Janet, please do pop them in the chat and I'm sure she can follow on there. Yes. We might um, move on. Thank you very much, Janet. Thank that was you. really interesting. Uh, fascinating to see how you break it all down. Um, and we're going to move on to our next speaker. Um, it's my pleasure to welcome um, Bern Emmerichs. Bern is a highly celebrated artist. Her works are in the Australian National Gallery, the National Gallery of Victoria and collections all around the world. Bern is renowned for her work, which explores historical narratives of Australia's first settlement. Her paintings are created by using, using large hand-painted ceramic tiles. She is the artist and illustrator for the award-winning non-fiction First Settlement series and she is going to share some of that work with us here this afternoon. Welcome, Bern. Now, I know you're there. <laughs> I can see you. <laughs> now, we might just... Can you unmute yourself or I will do it for you if you can't find the button? There we go. Uh, yes, you're with us. Okay. Ah, wonderful. Uh, thank you. Now, now, Bern, I think we're going to start with your video. Is that how we're going to begin? Yes? That's probably a good idea. Let's Excellent. So, everybody, we have a lovely video, and it's up to me to be the sharing person. So, let's hope we get this to work correctly.
We can't hear. Yeah, I haven't got any sound. Oh. It's the same year. I thought I, I was doing something wrong, but yeah, me too. I'm so sorry. Did you not have sound? No. No. Oh, okay. And I'm really not sure why because I could hear everything. Ah. Um, I don't know why that is. I do apologise to everybody. There is a link to Burns' video on the Padlet. Um, so I think rather than me try to figure out now the technical reason for why I have not got the sound working, because according to me it should all be working and everything looks perfect this end. So I'm sorry, I do apologise. Oh, and you're all trying to tell me in the chat, and I was and I was not. Oh, I am so sorry. I do apologise, everybody. That's my fault entirely, and uh, I will figure out for next time why that was wrong. But I think what we might do is um, is just move on and leave that for everyone to watch themselves later on in the chat. If that's or sorry, in the, from the Padlet, if that's okay. I am really sorry. My my fault entirely. Um, so I'm so sorry, Bern. At least you got some. At least everybody got some idea of your wonderful studio uh, and, and what it all looks like. They got to see it, even if they uh, didn't get to uh, actually. Um, hear what you were saying, which was telling us about your wonderful career and your and your life as an artist. So I do apologise. Is it, is it, are you okay with proceeding to tell us a little bit about your work? I've taken up some of your yes. time. I do apologise. Oh no, that's okay. Is um, am I still on mute? Actually, or you can no, hear me? you're you're coming through loud and clear. Okay. Um, Oh no, that's okay. No, thanks, Susan, for inviting me, and it's um, it's such an interesting forum. And it's fantastic. And I just must say that I read um, Pierre and Jules' book the other night, uh, Jacqueline, and I just loved it. So beautiful. Just the incredible tiny dioramas and how you did that is just mind-boggling. That's gorgeous. Thank you. And thanks, Jeanette, too. That was so interesting. Um, okay, firstly, um, I'd like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung, the traditional owners of the land that I'm on. I'm here in Collingwood. And I'd like to pay my respects to elders past and present and emerging. Um, I've got a few notes here, so um, I'll just go through. But um, I've been painting for a long time, um, since as long as I can remember. And I've just turned 60, so I'm a senior painter now. I like, quite like that label. And it was probably my early childhood books that inspired, actually, my painting. Like, I've still got Robert the Rose Horse. Does anyone remember that classic book? It's written by Joan Heilbrunner um, about a horse who sneezes with roses. And, um, and I've gone on to have horses, love horses, love roses and gardens. <laughs> That's everything. And um, also my love of swap cards when I was a child. I was an avid collector and... Um, 
and I'm still surrounded by little um, dolls and people in my studio. So that whole notion of painting images and fashion and um, historical things too has just always been a big part of my life. Um, I went to art school. I was there for four years and um, I've been exhibiting regular, on a regular basis ever since in Sydney at Munsell Vicks and in Melbourne with Scott Liberty Gallery. Um, I've always lived in Melbourne, but I did spend the 12, 13 years in central Victoria on a historical farm where I had and raised my two gorgeous girls that are big now and um, also had horses, vineyard, olive grove, ducks, dogs and a donkey called Gino. So, and then two years I also lived in um, Germany and was exhibiting in Europe, we were based in a farm in Germany. Um, and in 2012, I'm sitting in my studio and I get a phone call from Alexandra Yutomi Clark, who is the founder and director of Burbay Books, asking if I'd be interested in doing a children's book. And I just thought, oh my God, that's fantastic. It was just like a dream come true. It was just something that I've always wanted to do. And so, the following year, I think we started and eight years on six books. We've got um, six books we did and two that one were up for um, CBCA awards. So that was fantastic. Um, and Alexandra was the whole process and the journey of doing a children's book and doing a book was just, it's just been a, a fantastic experience. And Alexandra has an incredible eye for a visual eye and aesthetic eye and a fantastic team of people that she works with and has um, networked over the years. So I've, there's um, worked with three fantastic authors, Michael Sedenry, John Dixon and Rose Giannone. So, um, and yeah, it was just fantastic. So I would do the painting and um, only the first book that I did, What's Your Story, which I have here. This one, What's Your Story, that was the first one written by Rose Giannone. And I actually had to develop two characters in there. So that was actually, that was quite challenging. But um, the following books after that, they were also on, um, all based on early colonial Australian history. So um, I did like mountains of research, which I absolutely love. Um, I'm a big history buff and 
and I think, and I'd always been interested in history, and but mainly European history from the early days. But it probably wasn't until 2005 when I was researching about the Tasmanian tiger, and I thought, oh my God, this amazing books and history and all these stories that I do not know um, of early Australian history. So it was just like a treasure trove. So that all sort of, it, all my love of history, Australian history in particular, started around that time. So, um, yeah, and I do a lot of my research, I um, delve into trove, uh, log books, early journals, shipping records. I'm a ferocious library lover from way back and all those shared houses sort of in my student days. And, and I spent most of my time in the library because for one, it was always welcoming and warm in winter and just an array of resources around me. So it's the first thing, every time I shift to a new location or whatever, sign up at the local library. <laughs> Anyway, and state and national um, libraries I also do get my research from. And I've got, um, I call them my Bibles. I've got the beautiful book written by Rachel Perkins and Marcia Langton, the first Australians. There was an SBS series on it years ago now. And the other book, which was brilliant, that was associated with um, an exhibition that was at the National Gallery of Victoria in 2008 called Colony. It is also a beautiful book and a resource. Anyway, I've got a whole gamut of books and um, I've got one, I'm surrounded by wonderful op shops and bookshops here too, so I've got a big collection. Um, and all my work is, is painted on tiles. I've got so they come in all sizes, but that's sort of can you see that that's one of so that's like ninety by thirty. And then how how was that made into the picture book then, Byrne? If that, do they then photograph it or? Yeah, then it's photographed. And then, so sometimes like Michael, um, John Canty is the, is the amazing creative editor and he's just a, a wizard. I think I'm, I'm his biggest nightmare, I think, when I turn up with the photographs because of the format and, and of course, not all of them are 30 by 90, but they're, either 30 by 60 or smaller. Sometimes they've been very tiny. So um, yeah, he might just take like a section of that photograph or whatever. But he's a whiz, I tell you, he's fantastic. So I use, um, it's ceramic paint. So it's put on, it's mixed with water and a medium and it, it's a powder and I have to, I can only do like a section at a time and then I will do it. Then it has to be fired because it returns to powder. 
I can't do say one big section of a colour and then another section because it would it would rub off the other section if you know what I mean. It's a bit tricky, but so anyway, they do go through the kiln about six times. But in that way, I get lots of depth and and really rich colours and and I thought I just like to play with paint. I suppose I use um. I use tiny brushes, like you can't even see. Sometimes I have to make my own um, because I can't get them by them that small. Or I buy brushes and I give them haircuts. And then I use big, a big brush for like big areas, which is a, that's a badger brush. So made from, made from badger hair. So I don't get like big um, brush strokes and softening so it's a process and then I do a lot of scratching so lots of dentist tools and anything I can use. I use um, decals sometimes, ceramic decals and stamps and all sorts of things. Fern, um, can I ask if the process, yeah. it's an amazing process and people are commenting in the chat on how incredible it is. How do you then work with the author in relation to their story? What if there are changes or modifications? Because once you've fired the tiles, that's that yes. seems like a very set in concrete kind of process. What does it, is there an editorial way of working through what the story is going to finally look like? Are there changes? Yeah, it's sort of like um, a process. So I through while we're making the book, where there'll be meetings and. Okay. And um, and then you know, like John Dixon might have the like the words there and everything, and then I will do a painting to that, mm. and or it can work the other way around where I've done the painting of a say a subject, say like Ben Along and Philip, mm -hmm. and um, and then after still I've done the paintings and then he's um. Yeah, put the words to it. So, and these um the paintings are also exhibited, so they're part of my exhibition. So it's an ongoing thing. So it's it's a yeah, it's a beautiful process. And especially the first one, I had to do strictly with the script and develop the two characters. Mm -hmm. So that was different. But um, so it's a very for me it's like um a lot of freedom and um yeah not so restricting I suppose and yeah I mean I'm just such a uh, I've always been a visual person so there's lots of lots of writing also in my drawings and lots of numbers and that. Mm. That's something that I've always done because when I was, I think I'm sort of just a school kid who I'm um, still doing those school projects, you know, I feel like that sometimes. Because when I was going to school, that was my way of learning, was not so much the reading, but if there was a visual connected to that text, then that stayed with me. And so that was the way that I... I took in information that was always so important. Mm. Thank you. Um, 
Oh, well, sorry, I'm going to have to wind you up. That was that's uh, that's fascinating, actually, to think that that's the way your mind works. Um, thank you so much. <laughs> thank you so much for sharing. There's a lot of really positive, fantastic comments in the chat. So please take a moment to have a look. People are saying they're going to go back and look at the books and that they understand the process that you've gone through um, to create them as wonderful works of art. So thank you so much for being here and sharing with us. I'll apologise again for mucking up the video, but I and someone has explained in the chat what I needed to do, so I know better for the future. Um, the video is in the Padlet, though, everybody, um, so please do go and take a look at it. And thank you, Bern. Thank you so much for being here oh, and sharing with us. Okay. okay. We're going to move on thank to you. our next speaker. It's wonderful. Um, I'm sorry to be moving along everybody so quickly. I mean, we could probably spend a couple of hours with each one of our speakers this afternoon. But our next guest is here and um, we need to get to her. Uh, that is Jo Pankridge. Jo is currently the teacher librarian at the Geelong College Junior School. She has over 30 years experience in education, research, coaching and consulting in literacy and children's literature. She has studied and presented in this area over a long period of time. She'll be known to many of you, I'm sure. She is a past Victorian judge for the Children's Book Council of Australia Picture Book Book of the Year Awards. Jo Pankridge is going to give us a teach librarian's perspective on engaging and challenging upper primary and lower secondary students with picture books. Welcome, Jo. I know that you are here. Yes, I am here and I will share my screen while I am talking because it seems like it takes a little time. But um, thank you, Susan, for that and thank you to everyone for being here this afternoon. If you hear major cracks and, and shakes, we have the most incredible thunderstorm going at the moment out here. So um, it might be a little atmospheric down in Geelong. But it's uh, it's happening here too, actually, um, oh, Joe. Yeah. So we might be all we might lose our electricity. That'd be funny. But anyway, let's let's just charge ahead. <laughs> that would be loads of fun. Okay. Well, I'm here this afternoon to um, share the value of an educational focus on visual literacy and how to develop uh, visual literacy in middle years classrooms using picture books to frame discussions. So this is a very quick recap. Visual literacy is the notion that images like text it can be read in a similar way and that meaning can be constructed just like text and interpreted in a similar way. And this is actually a, a complex act. It's a, a higher order process of cognition that actually requires explicit teaching. So with so many more forms of visual literacy, uh, visual text than ever before, and we've seen uh, the amazing Jules and Pierre Jacques and Burns work, um, there's an increasing need for students to learn the skills of looking at, appreciating and interpreting visual information. Young children do this quite naturally. Young children are drawn to pictures and colour and form. But this instinct can be developed and enhanced by teaching students how to analyse and understand the multimedia they engage with and consequently appreciate its complexity. So how do we teach these skills? Well, it could be as simple as teaching the skill of slow looking, which is a term uh, coined by Brian Kennedy, an American art director, who claims that it's only when we really look at something slowly and carefully can we actually see it and then make meaning of it. And when we see it, we can describe it, analyse it, interpret it, and then finally construct a meaning from it. And this is where picture books are so appropriate even for senior students 
they're the perfect vehicle for discussing visual literacy. As we've seen, picture books are increasingly sophisticated, uh, containing insightful social and cultural commentaries that challenge our perceptions and our thinking, that cultivating of those critical thinking dispositions that are so important. They're multi-layered. We find now that the illustrator becomes the storyteller in their own right, not just supporting the text, but either adding to the text, changing it, or even subverting the visual in, uh, the written information. And rather than overstating or implying a meaning, illustrators today often leave gaps to encourage readers to speculate and create a meaning of their own. A kind of, you know, what do you make of all this sort of a question. And of course, picture books are readily available. So the thing about visual literacy instruction is that it does require students to learn a meta language, to allow them to talk about the how, the why, and the when that visual literacy techniques are used. And although we're sharing some here, there are many, many more um, that you can access. In the first, in the first stage, the representation stage, are guided to notice subject matter, vector, shape, and size. That kind of what's happening in the image question. In the interaction stage, we've got students making meaning where not all the information has been explicitly given uh, by considering how colour creates meaning, about angles, about character gestures, and, and how they support the meaning of an image. Then there's the evaluation stage, where we look at the design elements that create this emotional response. So we look at salience, what our eye is drawn to first in an image. We look at framing, how are framed or loose to be, to create that sort of freedom. Um, and space, how it's being used. And those questions would then refer to how an image makes us feel. Quick examples of these in the representation stage. Subject matter is who or what's in the image and what's the image about. We look at vector. Can you see the major lines in an image? And how do these lines create reading paths for our eyes? Are the lines visible or invisible? We'll talk about Matt Otley's Freedom Machine and Elise Hurst's Girl on Wire in just a moment. But the, the beautiful photo from The Big Little Book of Happy Sadness by Colin Thompson, where the vector direct our attention along with George's eyesight towards that green door at the end of the row. And that we know when we read the story is where the dogs go when nobody wants them. We look at shapes too. Um, bird shapes, the, the shapes that suggest the natural environment, they're warm and they're safe, whereas straight and jagged lines suggest excitement or destruction or unease. And then we have size. How is size being used to suggest power plays or the, or the importance of an image? We look at Matt Otley's teacup and that tiny vulnerable boat against that immense ocean. Of course, anything Sean Tan does is, is so worth looking at. Um, the tiny shape of the cicada who can't manage the elevator and the elongated figure of the woman passing by. And of course, Anthony Brown is another master, as we've already heard, in in size, shape, and power plays there. In the interaction stage, we're looking at techniques used by illustrators whilst not everything is being made available to the reader. So colour becomes important and how it's been used 
to create an effect on the viewer or to convey an emotion or a mood. Um, we've got angles, um, how angles are used to create relationships between characters and with the reader and to establish power plays or what is happening from the point of view of the author, of the illustrator. So we've got frontal, which is an involvement. Um, characters looking onto the side, they're detached. And those high and low angles looking at weakness and dominance. And then we have gaze. You know, where is the character's gaze directed? And what does this say to us? A direct gaze challenges us and makes us look at that character. Whereas gaze is directed at another part of the image suggests that we need to be looking at that main, the salience, the main image in the text. So we've got in Morris Sendak's Where the Wild Things Are, the wild things are all looking towards um, Max the King. Then we get to the evaluation stage where we're looking at techniques now that create an emotional response. And so here we look at the place or the image that our eye is drawn to first. So how an illustrator purposefully directs our attention to where they want us to look first. And they can use color, they could use light, or even a particular object to draw our eye into the image. There's the use of space to draw attention to specific images or to draw an emotional response from the viewer. We have wide open spaces that suggest isolation or emptiness or infinite possibilities in How to Make a Bird, the um, Matt Otley illustration there, whilst busy spaces can infer either chaos or energy, depending on the picture book. Going through that very, very quickly, I've got some activities, putting my, my um, educator hat on, some activities that might develop students' ability to learn both the meta-language essential for them to talk about text, uh, talk about images, and then to understand these images um, a little more successfully. This first activity invites students to share and discuss images. And as elements are identified, these visual literacy terminology uh, can be introduced. So in this one, I chose um, an illustration by Armin Greta. Again, as Susan has already mentioned, Armin Greta, anything he does is is so emotive and so powerful, particularly for older readers, and the issues that he, he discusses through his illustrations are quite profound. Um, have the image there and have the three visual questions available that I've got on the Padlet there. Uh, the first one, what can you see? Then how does it make you feel? And then what is the image trying to tell you? Students can make comments like the ones that I'm about to show you, and then the word or the, the meta language can be added to it. So they might suggest, look at the horizontal lines of the pitchfork, drawing our eye to that naked figure. They might look at the bulk of the figure, suggesting that weight or power compared to the frailness of that slight figure. You could talk about the space. Look at the, the white spaces around that, again, that naked figure to draw our attention to it. He doesn't want any superfluous imagery there. We're just directed to that moment there. We've got colour. The children or students might talk about the colour and how that impacts on the image and our point of view of that image. That pale figure against those dark, bulky figures. 
And then the soft line, we talk about lines there. We've got the soft lines of the naked figure, suggesting that vulnerability against those sharp lines of the pitchfork. In another one, um, students could create their own visual literacy glossaries of terms using images from picture books. So just provide loads and loads of picture books for students to look through to find examples of all these techniques that illustrators use to add to or create a meaning. They could use Book Creator, Explain Everything, Prezi or PowerPoint to present their understandings to their peers. We've got comparative images. This is another activity that works really well to highlight what an illustrator is trying to share with the viewer. Find two images that portray different moods, indicating a possible change in the character. This one's The Dream Settler by Irene Cobalt. If you've read this one, it's a really powerful book with a huge backstory. But invite the students to highlight the techniques used by the illustrator to suggest or explore this change in the character. So first of all, we look at the rounded shape, the walls through the face and contentment in the boy's face. We look at the movement from the rounded natural shapes in the environment to those sharp lines denoting this change of mood. And there's also the colour change from brightness and happiness to this coldness and uncertainty. And then we look at those sharp, jagged lines as the character changes from the rounded shape to a very angular, very uneasy, uh, maybe destructive character. And then, of course, the colour change suggests that mood and what the illustrator is trying to share. So that's another one. This one I've used um, many times to great success. Um, this one is illustrators as storytellers. So we have two columns. In one column, you choose an image from a picture book. And in the other column, this one's from uh, To Make a Bird, um, you just write the text. Now, the students are asked then to look at all the visual imagery they see in that image and talk about that. So we've got vector and we've got salience. So where our eye is drawn to that very soft figure of a girl framed by that window, even her shadow. And that, that softness of that girl suggests that she's a dreamer or a thinker in, in the position of her body. We move back from that vector and that salient figure there to Find out a little bit more about her. We can see that she, she loves nature. She loves gathering things. She's a collector. She's very mindful. She's very interested in the natural world. And that frames a lot of what we know about her as we work through the book and gives us a greater sense of meaning as we read this book. And it's a really good one to show students how an illustrator has used a variety of techniques to add meaning beyond what the text says, because on this page, there is in fact only four words on the page. So if that was all we had, we wouldn't get this, this wealth and this richness of understanding about um, this story and the message that both the author and illustrator are trying to pass, pass over. Point of view, um, how has an illustrator used visual features to convey meaning? Again, the three questions are there for students to engage with. So we could talk about the salience. Have a look, our eye is drawn to the green of cicada's face and the gray all around it, that cold, uncomfortable gray. We've got size disparity there, the small figure with his flailing arms. We have those long, elongated 
shapes of belief. We also have the framing element here. We're not seeing the rest of those the rest of those figures, suggesting that they're dominant characters, they're inhuman, which is telling us a lot about what Sean Tan is sharing in this book. Here's another one, another point of view, how the illustrator again has used these techniques to convey an image in a text. We've got um, Zoo from Anthony Brown, which we've seen um, already before. We've had a look at the gaze. The gaze suggests this hopelessness because it's averted. It's not looking straight at us. What is that telling us about Anthony Brown's point of view here? We look at framing. The image is contained or imprisoned in this frame. It's not, it's not free. Uh, we have very, very specific lines there. And we have a size um, perspective here. It's too large. It's, it's, it's sense, there's a sense of discomfort or being squeezed into a small space. And in Flanders Field, we have um, the idea of shape, that spraying, that supplication, which is quite a spiritual gesture. We've got the tangled chaos of the barbed wire. And then we have the colour, the red, the bright red and the, the, the light around the bright red contrasted to this sepia. So that we've got this brightless, brightness and then hopelessness. And then the salience and line. Our eye is drawn to that bird by almost a triangular invisible line from, from the soldier's gaze to his hands and up to the bird. And the bird's up in the light there, suggestive of hope. We have textless picture books too, which offer limitless opportunities for interrogation. Um, and to have a look at techniques like angles and expressions and gazes and gestures. But we also have picture books that work on their own, the entire picture book, um, like a book like Girl on Wire, um, Lucia Seller and Elise Hurst show students how slow and careful looking can deepen their understanding of a book. So this is an allegory of a young girl struggling to build her self-esteem and overcome anxiety. It's perfect for middle years um, discussion, but it's her extraordinary illustrations that really show us how to step into the world of the girl to feel her anxiety. But she also leaves gaps within the images for us to fill in our own interpretations. It's written metaphor. Um, Hearst wanted to situate the book in a fantasy setting to make this, to allow this girl to fly. And so she had to create an, a, an imaginary setting. And, and so if we notice the Victorian rooftops, the minarets, the Roman archways, the medieval towers, Chinese temples, we've even got wind turbines. Um, there is a suggestion that this, this is not a real space. So it allows this girl to actually fly in the story. We talk about line here and the vector. The eye is being led through the street up to the girl right at the top of the image. We've got color there and we have the line of that tightrope. Students can consider why it's important for our eyes to be drawn all the way from the street up to the image. What does it tell us about the girl? What's she doing and what's she feeling like? We have an angle there. We, where is the character looking? And what does that suggest about what she's about to do? And then there's the impact of the colour there. We can further introduce the development of line to support what's going on in the image here. We've got jagged lines suggesting tension and anger, a descending line of the tightrope. 
and and the invisibility of that tightrope. What does that say about where the girl's going and the danger of her movement towards one page, one side of the page to the other? And is that the beginning? There's no beginning or there's no end. And then we've got symbols and metaphors in images. You know, why birds? What do they symbolise? What's the impact of this particular symbol of that? big white bird and the birds flying beyond it, the girl moving off and again her free-flowing form this time and how does that all impact on the message? Am I running out of time, Susan? <laughs> well, you, you're at time um, but I haven't stopped you because Buri's not here yet. <laughs> Oh, I'll just do one more piece. <laughs> so, so you may keep talking and I'm watching for Buri. <laughs> well, in, in the last one, uh, in The Incredible Freedom Machines, uh, Saunders and Otley produced through Scholastic Book, is another brilliant um, example of how to use picture books to really look at the elements of visual literacy. So again, we've got line. We can look at line here. We look at the uniformity of the caravans. The illustrator suggests that that predictability and the sameness extending as far as the eye can see, of boredom, it's low down, it's hugging the earth. And students can contrast that low, long line with that amazing, creative, unique uh, shape of the freedom machine. Uh, what's the point of view here of the illustrator? What is he saying about life down below and life up in the sky. And what does the girl's smallness in this show and, and this central really large picture of the freedom machine? And again, what is the illustrator telling us about life in general? And then we've got colour, how colour has been used again in this same book to develop a contrast between that sort of washed out grey of the reality of living on the ground compared to the bright burst of colour of the freedom machine. And then finally the vector here. What does the line of the earth drawing the eye to the patch of colour tell us about where that freedom machine is taking this girl? What's special about what's happening down there um, over off in the, dis in the distance and the possibilities of this freedom machine? So picture books are so rich in imagery and, and rich in developing another element to a story and I know from the students that I've worked with, the older students, they absolutely love when they get an understanding of how they should be looking at images and at pictures in picture books. They love seeing what else they can find and how that adds to not only their understanding of a text but as I said before their appreciation of a text and, and how wonderful picture books can be. Um, in my last slide, I've, I've got, and I put this on the Padlet, um, some great illustrators and some fabulous books um, that you might like to use to develop um, visual literacy with some of those activities. I've also put those activities on the Padlet too, so that um, if you would like to have a look in greater detail to some of those activities, um, they're there. But I'm sure that is my 20 minutes. <laughs> Well, thank you, Joe. It's actually it's actually slightly over, but you are wonderful. Thank you for keeping going. I'm um, that was truly brilliant and uh, so much quality. Thank you very much for being so generous and sharing and popping all of that on the Padlet. Um, 
I am going to introduce Buri and I'm going to assume that that is going to work magic. I've been told on the email by his publisher he's logging in, but I can't see him yet. So what we're going to do is I'm going to, I'm going to introduce him and I'm, I'm expecting that's going to make him appear. <laughs> Let's see how that goes. <laughs> I'd now like to welcome our final speaker for this event, uh, Buri Monty Pryor. Buri was born in Townsville, North Queensland. Uh, his father is from the Juru people of Cape Upstart from the Bowen region. His mother is a descendant of the Gurubana Moiety group from the Ganganji nation near Cairns. Buri is a multi-talented performer who has worked in film and television, modelling, sport, music and theatre and education. He's written several award-winning children's books, including the Prime Minister's Literary Award winner, Shake a Leg, and was the Australia's inaugural children's laureate with Alison Lester. He co-wrote and is the subject of Wrong Kind of Black, an international Emmy Award nominee film screening on Netflix and Brown Paper Bag, in which he also stars. During his career, he has, as a storyteller, Buri has worked with over one million children, which I think is just beyond amazing. We are thrilled to have Buri join us, and I hope uh, this is magic and he is actually here, uh, to talk to us about his new book, Story Doctors. Welcome, Buri. I hope you're online. Stories are food. And as a storyteller, writer, presenter, how do you learn to find ways to have people who don't like broccoli eat broccoli? How do you find ways to have your children eat greens. And not so much avoid fast food because everyone else is on that fast food train. And after COVID, it's on the fast Uber train of delivery. Mm -hmm. So how do you alleviate the thought process that has been engineered by situations of, of COVID and even before that? It's about understanding yourself first. Because words are really important. And how you use them affects whomever you're talking to. Action, reaction. And the learning curve of the writer, the speaker, the performer, teacher, or anybody in life is How do you not be too obvious and not be a preacher and preach to people? That comes from the work you do on yourself. Because a lot of the times when writers, this is what I think, 
and writers, filmmakers, painters, um, I think you have to write and do these things from within, from you, because the person in front of you wants to know about you. And it's not trying to be in the wheelhouse of the fast and furious, right? Because that if that's not you, then you're cheating yourself. So the biggest point I try to make with people like myself is to be truthful to me because I know that kids suffer no fools, right? They know. So if you don't try your best to understand that, and I always say, for me as a performer teacher, I suppose I am, all of those things, storyteller, is that I always say if you listen to the children, they will teach you how to teach them. Now, and that means that you have to leave space. I know I'm going on a long journey here, but that means you have to leave space. And if you leave space, that shows respect for them. Mm. And they will leave space for you, show respect for you. You are still a teacher and they are still the learners, but you are a learner as well. And I think that that's what we forget sometimes. That, and that's what I've learned in my time, is that every single day I learn something, as we should. And uh, Sidney Poitier, one of my favorite actors, amazing person, human being, says, well, I've got to being this age and I know nothing. I'm going, but you've done it. Yeah, I know nothing. And that's how we've got to treat life. So I think, okay, now I've built that platform to maybe have you understand that that um, it's a lot of hard work. And as you probably know, picture books are the hardest ones to do because you know there's very limited space uh, for art and words to go together. So. I suppose that it took me a long time of frustration to write story doctor. Oh, sorry, I should put it up here. This book here, isn't it? So, and that's that's the great work of um, everybody at Allen and Armand. And Rita Sinclair and her family and my family uh, and the community because this is a community written book. Couldn't have been done without the community that surrounds me. Take a good look at that. So, now did I expect to write this book? In verse, had no idea. All I wanted to do, 
out of frustration, this was tell a story. Take all the profanities out. Take all the anger out. But not suck up to anger. In turn, not to be a slave. Not to be a slave to what's been laid down for us to still be. And sometimes the realization for us as Aboriginal people, um, it's hard to not be angry, of course. Mm. So, and it's really weird that we should have this conversation now, because I worked over in Palm Island, which is where mum and dad were born, um, last Wednesday. Mm. And I worked with the men's group there. Now we went through, I didn't actually, I dealt with the, with the issues by dealing, finding ways to deal with each other as people. No labels, no finger pointing. Mm. And it was all three stories. So as I'm getting to the point of, of teenagers and older older children. Um, and to explain that, I have to go on this journey. Yeah. Because right? uh, that explains me a lot, but also then hopefully all of the messages that I find on the way, I can stick on the sticker board without sticking them on the sticker board because you will pick them out. And that's, I suppose, the way it works about, oh, I think I might have a tried broccoli. What's that other green stuff? I'll have a go at that too. Yeah, carrots aren't bad, you know. So it's like, okay. Invasions. Oh no, I don't wanna I don't wanna eat that. I don't wanna understand that. Put it in such a way they go, Oh, I suppose. Tell me more. So how do you make it accessible? Mm. So with the men's group on had an idea, but I didn't know how I was going to work it, but I had an idea. So I walked in and I sat down. A lot of a lot of the people on Palm Island, uh, my relatives. We even got a street name, Fryer. Hmm? <laughs> and I always say it's not a streetcar named Desire. It's a streetcar named after Fryer. <laughs> That's sick, really sick. But <laughs> but it worked for them. They laughed. So. So what I did is use reference points that they could adhere to, understand. So what do you do when you go away? 
on the camping trip. When you go, what do you pack for your journey to go to and from the place you're going to go to and come back? So, well, swag, blankets, sugar flower tea, flake damper, fishing rods, lines, bait, ice, all that stuff. And then we unpack each of those things. Why do you need water? Why do you need bait? Why do you need this? Why do you need that? And we, we unpack all of those things. And I said, okay, now I want you to close all close your eyes and think about what you need from this point on to pack in your journey through life. What you need to survive. They all closed their eyes. Open. Said, okay, what? And I got my other friend to write up on the chalkboard on the on the on the board. Respect, honor, truth, um, respect, honor, truth, family, community. Um, there was about five, there was about 15 words. Mm. And I said, okay, let's unpack the words. Why do you need honor? They unpacked that. Why do you need, what does that do for you? How does that feed you? And we unpacked all of the words came to respect. And I said, what does respect mean? And they went, well, um, and then we, um, and I said, well, my way of thinking is that you have to earn right, the right to respect yourself. How do you do that? Mm -hmm. And we all went through, because even before I started, I said, uh, you know, I've got all these books and I've got all these awards and I've done this film and I've done that. I said, that makes me a hard worker. I'm no better than you. I'm just better than myself. And I've worked really hard doing that. And I said, I come in with great respect for you and your pain because I know about that. So it wasn't about me coming this great savior. I'm flat out saving myself. So it's like, well, you're your own savior. You have to be your savior yourself and then we un unpack all those things and we have enough to I said I got an idea you're all this men's group right and um, what I want you to think about look on the board I said I want you to make a t-shirt with all your words and you can design it yourself make it up yourself and wear that T-shirt with pride. Now you've got no escape. So when you get in trouble, what's going on here? Pencil. Um, when you when you get in trouble, and you're thinking about stuff that you might get hurt, look at your word. Around the other words and say, if I don't deal with this, I'm not respecting those other words. And they love that. Hmm. And then I read story documents here. And we unpacked story documents. Then we went through all the words. And we read it, they read it with me. And I said, now, 
shut up, stop winking. Because this book is you. You, story guide. I, this island, and the rest of Australia need you to hear. So stop picking up. So, DNA hands and all the artwork in the book to, I suppose, join or, I suppose, tell us tell the story another way through, through, mm. and there's there's no through art, so there's mm. art and words. So it was my job initially to help the breathing in the verse. There's no mm. breathing in it, and that's another thing that I talk about as well. If there's no breath, then there's death. It's like anything. Try running around the park holding your breath. You've got to breathe properly. And your body says, okay, I can work with you. If you don't, your body says, stuff you, and you fall over. Mm. And that's what life is like, and that's what this book is saying. We are all falling over at the moment. We've got to get our breath. So Rita then helped to breathe more with the art. Great mm. thing about I love about this book is that there's no traditional art in the book, which mm. means that it's generic in a sense that every community, of the over 400 groups of people in this country of, of nations, can use this book. And use their own language in this. And it also means that everybody else can read it in that language. Is that tricky or not? <laughs> no, it makes good sense. So do you feel like eating broccoli now? <laughs> I like broccoli. <laughs> oh good. Pulling the, uh, pulling the, the, the <laughs> of course, I now feel like eating broccoli. Good, that's better, that's better. Um, so I think, um, so that's a long-winded answer, but I think that um, anything you want to ask about those points? What do you, no, what that, do you like about those points, about understanding the journey? and? Yeah, no, I really like it. I like the way you, uh, I mean, talking to me then about the, the, the um the people uh, that you were speaking with, you let them unpack it themselves and, and come to the answers and, and use their own words yes. as part of the story. Yes. And that's what makes it powerful for them, yeah? Yes. Um, and I think, so I suppose if I can take that a step further, that's what you're trying to do with this too. Yes. Someone that 
someone that reads Story Doctors is going to bring themselves to the story. Yeah. Yes. So they, in other words, we've, you know, like, and I, I talk about it in the foreword, is mm. that uh, if you expect someone else to want to be part of your story and to understand your story and love your story and love themselves through loving your story, then you have to do your work first. Mm. If you just throw something out there and expect people to understand it, excuse me for saying this gets stuck because it's not going to mm. work. Yeah. You have to do your work. Can't scribble something out and expect people to understand or like it. Not saying that I'm the greatest person in the world, but I luckily got a pretty good track record with the stuff that I do. Mm. Because it doesn't work for me unless it works for me. And as Elise said, that I wanted Rita to do it. And she did mm. this little clip up and said, you know, well, what about Illis? And I cut her off. I said, Rita, she said, Stratus. There's a little tip that says, Illis, Rita, Stratus. She said he was adamant, Bree was adamant that Rita, Rita was going to do the book. And I knew that I had the right person. No one else. She gave me about 20 or 30 illustrators. And I said, no, Rita. Yeah. You made a right, the right decision. Would you show us a couple of your favourite images, perhaps, that Rita has created? Um, I think probably um, my favourite one is, of course, towards the end, which is she's got the she's got the um, the stringy person or the DNA person. Um, actually, I love love all the pages, but I love <laughs> I love this one here where the DNA is opened up. The DNA is hold that up. The DNA is opened up. Can you see that? Yeah, yeah, yeah we can see it. Yeah, that's and great. And you see, my family is is one streak of DNA in amongst that. I'm oh, in my lovely. Air Force uniform there, and the great thing I love about that see the big eye back there. And yeah. You go back. The string is going, and the words are there, and I think I say if I can remember the words. Um, our future is the past. We're learning from it last. Elementary is the focus. There is the, no hocus pocus. Be that full being and animals that you're seeing. I think I say, dance among the dust. In us, the dust we trust. So, did you have trouble? Did you have trouble with the verse? I don't remember you writing in verse before. Uh, I do do verse, but I haven't. Um, I have got, um, well, I, I suppose it's not poetry, but it is in verse. I'm not, a, I'm mm. not, a, you know, I mean, if you, if you speak to poetry people, they go, that's not poetry. I said, well, that's okay, because I never wrote it for you. <laughs> I never wrote it for poetry people, you know. So is it more like a song? Is it more like a song, Burry? I don't know. It's up to the, uh, again, I always look at um, how I feel. Sometimes in my in the next couple of stories that I'm doing, I drift off into kind of verse, mm. and I don't care because that's how I felt at the time, and that's what I write. 
Yeah, sure. Well, if it means some something, it means something to you. Yeah. Yeah, and and again, it's it's not everybody's like that, and that's fine too. Mm. But I'm not everybody else, and everybody else is not me. So we always do things differently, and that's what makes the world wonderful. So I think I'm very abstract, and I'm very um, linear, I suppose. Mm. You know, uh, and I uh, expect um, that me, my, I suppose it's craft, is if I see something exciting that I can, I can work on to make something like when I started writing this, mm. uh, even the next book is about the floods in Townsville. And we've already, Rita and I are already working on another book called Knowing, and it's about words. We spent 10 years on it. Right? And it's a mm. picture book as well, or a graphic novel. And hopefully that'll be out by the end of next year. Okay. So, so it just came about by, again, by people not understanding, mm. but also how do you, the broccoli thing again, how do you without, without offending, not so much offending, but not having people want to listen, you know, you can yeah. speak, you can you can preach to the converted, I suppose, mm. but you don't necessarily want to. You know that most of them are going to be on board. What you need to do is to make something that people will at least look at. You know? Yeah, yeah. They don't yeah, have to skill. jump on board. So mm. I suppose with younger kids, now let's get back to the 14, 12, 13, 14, 15 year olds. Um, now, again, in the book, it's very playful and it looks really inconspicuous. It's a beautiful book cover, all of those mm. things, and it's just a picture book. Nothing too scary about that. It looks pretty simple. You can, <laughs> you can do a picture book in like a, a week. That's a <laughs> it's so easy, picture book. Look at it. It's just got pictures. Uh, I wish it was. I don't think so. <laughs> no, but that's, that's, that's the thing that you've got on your side. Yeah. And that's where if you're truthful to yourself and what you do, then you blindside people who are in the dark because they've turned the light on. Mm. So you need for them to turn the light on to see what you're saying. They'll go, yeah. well, how do we understand? And they have to, where's that switch? And they'll turn the light on. They'll go, oh, yeah. So I think that that's what, you have to do as a storyteller, writer, presenter, performer, filmmaker, painter, all of those things. And that's what Rita and I have done in this. And and again, that's not saying everybody doesn't do that who does picture books and does, but I'm just explaining what I expect of myself and Rita and what Rita and I expect of each other. And because Rita had no idea what she was going to do. Because I just threw it on her. I said, um, I want you to do this book with me. She goes, what? And there was silence. I said, yeah, you're going to do it. She said, you're putting on me. You're putting it on me. And I said, about time someone did. So, <laughs> so when she got the job, she was like, what am I going to do? I said, I have no idea. That's your job. I'm the writer. Get moving. So we would. Skype, we would Zoom, we would get on the phone, and then we would talk. And then I would read the verse. I would recite the verse. 
and I'd read it in different breathing patterns. From whence we came, the sum of some observed the tracks from where we come. From whence we came, the sum of some observed the tracks from where we come. So I'd, I'd read each verse in different phrasing and different, and she would have the screen off. She'd be walking around the room thinking, making a cup of tea, sometimes dancing. Then she'd sit down and she would do her art. So she drew from my voice. That's a really interesting collaboration to do it that way, isn't it? Because you, you weren't together at all. You were always no. on Zoom or something. Well, well, we when we, we got on Zoom, but when we got together, she would show me yeah. the art. And yeah. then, of course, we would, we would, but the other times we would just do it and then she'd come up with the next few pages and say, I've got an idea. And she'd go bang, 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 bang. Mm. And, of course, then that then leaves that open for everyone else to actually work out, you know, the conversation we're having to make the story. Yeah. So that we can all listen to our conversation together. Hmm. So that's yeah, how... yeah, it's clever. It's clever the way you've managed to do that to allow that space for others to come to it. But what I think is extra special too is that you then keep, and you do this with other things that you've done as well. You also manage to keep it positive, and and uplifting. And I find that um, I find that really moving that you manage to do that. <laughs> That you managed to to keep to keep something affirming about the story that really uh, embraces you once you embrace the story, and that that's really powerful. Yeah. Well, I I think we we can't achieve what we want to achieve mm. if we're both angry. Mm. And I say it in the first book, maybe tomorrow, is that fire with fire doesn't work. You know, one yeah. has to be the water, or one has to be the crawler of that fire. Because if you don't, everything burns, and that's kind of what is happening in a sense. Yeah. And I think all of the things that project the negatives, which is, mm. I suppose, the denying of dealing with the Uluru Statement, mm. Prime Minister saying there was no slavery in Australia, blowing up sacred sites, they're all the things that we should all question. We should all, I suppose, be angry about. Yeah, that's what that's what amazes me. I, I feel we should be angry, but you managed to move uh, move us in a different direction, I suppose, and so, in a direction that's actually ultimately, hopefully, more powerful because there's healing behind moving in that right direction rather than everyone just being angry. <laughs> It's a it's a really important it's a really important way of looking at it all. Um, and I don't want to digress here, but may I just say that maybe tomorrow, when I first read it, and I've read it more than once, um, and made me cry. <laughs> um, and I and I found it an incredibly powerful book. I used to use it with my students quite a lot, and I haven't oh, been cool. in school for a while. So anyway, we're digressing here. We're we're going too far away from where we should be. But can I, I mean, I suppose we probably have to wrap this up somehow, Buri. Um, Is there something, would you like to, um, I don't know, uh, read us a little bit or um, can we just finish? We've gone for way too long, um, so there's no need to stretch it out, but I just want to have a way of finishing our recording. What do you think? Would you Um, like to just... I suppose, I suppose that... um... 
I love stories and I love, um, and you talked about being healing and about like what Story Doctors is and what, I was at Mary Who Bookshop in Townsville, mm -hmm. which, is, which they were the first ones up here to launch maybe tomorrow, 22 years ago, speaking of maybe tomorrow, uh, and they launched this book that came in at my old school, Garbage State School. Now, I went down, I went into Mary Who, got some books to sign and bought some books there because I had some friends that on a story doctor. And this lady came up to me, two stories in one here. The lady mm -hmm. came up and said, I was walking past, stopped, saw your book in the window, looked at it and started crying. So she went in and she read the first page. And she burst into tears. She said, I've got to have this book. And I walked in. She came up to me and she said, she told me that story. And she said, could you sign this? And I said, I'd love to. She told me the story. She said, I've got to have this book. And then she walked in with her husband, really happy. And then I went down the sea bar, which is, I call it my office, which is facing Maggie Island, Magnetic Island. And I was... This is back when the footy was still on and I was going to watch my team play Carlton, Carlton Blues and get our butts kicked anyway. But I, I would sit down and um, so I was sitting down and uh, I gave a story doctors to the owner of the sea bar because he always looks after me. And then after half an hour, one of the ladies came out. She said, one of the waitresses, she said, oh, that's a lovely book because I left it on the table. I said, oh, could I get an, I said, sure. So I signed a book for her nephews. So that's two books gone. And I was still trying to watch my footy and the lady across the table said, oh, you got a book? And I said, yeah, have a look at it. And they said, oh, can we get a book? I said, sure. So I signed another book. So, and I had another book there and I said, this little boy came over and I think he was about six. And um, I said, well, come in and sit down. I said, I want you to, we'll go through the book together. And I mm. said, we'll read it. And then you can tell the family at the table what it means. So he kept on each page. He said, culture, 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 culture. And then the next page, he goes, Aboriginal people, culture, stringy person, and, and water. And, and then he went through everything. And then it came to lots of life. And then it came to, like, the, 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 there's, a, there's a, a beautiful picture, this one here. Uh, and to anybody in there, you can have a look where there's wildlife and there's water. And the next page is like destitution and, and dry land. And, 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 and it was, we, we purposely made it like that through the verse is to see, tell you the story of how like amazing it is, but understanding the land is important to, to understand that. And if you don't, this is what happens. Mm. And he goes, he goes, oh, not good with all the dry land, he said, not good at all, dangerous, he's going, and then it came to the, to the, to the face, to the swirly thing, he goes, and the eye looking back at the past, not good, you know, and he really understood the Aboriginal people and, and culture, 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 all the way through, and I was really impressed with, and there's lots of other things that were, like, he just attached himself to the book, so I said, you know what, you, you just are amazing, I said, I'm going to give you your own book. So I got another book out. What about five of them? I had two left, I think. 
And then I signed it for him and I gave it to him. And the family said, oh, that's great. And then he had his book and it was tucked under his arm. I saw them walking out. So I could get back to my footy. <laughs> so I said, finally, so I'm trying to drink my <laughs> cold coffee. And all of a sudden he's marching back and he's standing in front of me. And I said, hey, you back? He goes, yep. He said, now I know why this is called Story Doctor. I said, why? He said, because the medicine's in the story. Uh. And he turned around and walked off with the book folded under his head. Uh, that's lovely. So, if a six-year-old can do that, then 16-year-olds can do that. Mm. 60-year-olds can do that. Mm-hmm. And that's when we're going to heal. And that's when, hopefully, this book, maybe, might start the journey of some people. It's a great way to end. Yeah, thank you, Buri. That was lovely. All right, <laughs> thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye, everyone. You too. So, thank you to everyone for being here. I will email you in relation to gathering feedback about this event and the resources from the afternoon, in, including the link to the Padlet, uh, the recording of the afternoon's forum and the audio podcast. And later after that, I will also add to that a recording of Buri. Thank you to our wonderful guest speakers. Um, you were all fantastic, shared so many great ideas and really interesting um, works. Um, you're fantastic creators. And, uh, and we really appreciate you joining us for this event. Thank you also for supporting SLAB's professional learning program, and in particular the Reading Forum series, which has uh, mostly been online this year, and we're very hopeful that we'll be able to get some of our events back face-to-face -face in 2022. Um, I do hope to see you all again soon, either online or in person, and I apologise for the lack of being able to provide you with our final speaker. Thanks everyone, uh, enjoy the evening and um, I'll be in touch. Thank you everyone, thank you, you're all fantastic. Enjoy. <laughs>